Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's that time again for this week to get lost in science. My name is Chris and boy do I have some science for you. Do you, do, you, do you have some science for us? I do have some science for us. People talk about the connection between the bacteria in the gut and the brain. Now, somehow the bacteria in the gut affects the brain. Have you heard of this? Oh, yes, the, the gut-brain connection or various Yes, various someday ways they'll find it. it. Yeah, <laughs> the gut-brain gut connection. connection. Well, they may have found a possible gut-brain connection. Oh, okay. Uh, how it can affect it. Um, it's a rather surprising one. A recent discovery that there are possibly gut bacteria living in the brain. Wow. Yeah. How they got there, what they're doing there, no one knows yet. Um, this is kind of breaking news, but um, it's, it's a bit surprising. It is kind of surprising. So I'm going to look at that and try and find out, figure out what it means and what's actually going on. Wow. Mm. Okay. Well, you're, you're talking about brain invaders. I guess, are they brain invaders? I don't know. Yeah, they are. I mean, they're, 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 they're invading they're the brain. That yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to be talking about space invaders Possible, possible visitors from outside the solar system, only they're not, you know, aliens. They are alien, but they're not aliens. But yeah, I'm talking... Are they alive? No, probably not. So it's a rock, isn't it? It's a rock. Okay. It's a rock from it's a rock. Out, from very far away. Okay. Yeah. But it is, it's, it's a very interesting rock. Oh, very long Trust rock. me. Mm. And Claire, what have you got for us? Well, today I have a very special guest, Dr. Erin Richmond from Monash University, who has just released some very groundbreaking, very frightening research um, around pharmaceuticals that are ending up in our waterways, making their way into invertebrate species and um, higher order invertebrates like spiders as well, um, and potentially into you know our charismatic flora-like platypus. Wow, so these are chemical invaders. These are chemical invaders. That's right, Chris. You found it. This is the Invader Show. Yeah. So stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Erin Richmond. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Claire. And on with the show. There are about 600,000 known objects orbiting the sun in our solar system. That seems like a lot, doesn't it? That does actually sound like a lot, yeah. Yeah, so aside from the planets and the dwarf planets, and obviously there's a whole bunch of moons as well, but most of the rest of them are not very interesting. They're just little chunks of rock that are sort of spinning around the sun at various distances and speeds. So we're talking like asteroids and comets and those sort of things. Yeah, so comets obviously come a lot closer to the sun and then fling right back out to the far reaches of the solar system. But asteroids are mainly out in the asteroid belt, which is well beyond anywhere the planets hang out. No, the asteroid belt is between Mars and Jupiter. Well, there's that asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Are oh, you thinking the Kuiper belt? The Kuiper belt. That's yeah. the other one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. And um, as opposed to the Oort cloud, which is where a lot of the comets hang out. Yeah. But these things, you know, they're just basically chunks of rock. But early in October of 2017, a relatively small object, about 40 metres estimated, 
by 400 metres in size, was spotted travelling through the solar system, and it caught the attention of a number of astronomers. So lots of objects travel away from the sun. Comets, for example, are in quite large orbits around the sun and spend half their time travelling away from it, and obviously the other half travelling towards it uh, in a big loop. That's just what comets do. And usually when they do, they let out big plumes of gas as ice melts on their surface when they warm up and as they get caught in the gravitational pull of the sun, they generally slow down a little bit each time they come past the sun. So they they should be slowing down over time. Now, the weird thing about this object from October was that as it passed the sun, it didn't slow down and it seemed to increase speed as it pulled away from the sun. Now, it also didn't, have any plume associated with it. So it's it's kind of confusing what's going on there. So because comets are contain a lot of uh, ice. Yeah. They? And that the what, ice is what's kind of blown off by that, the sun. Yeah, that's right. As it warms up, it just, you know, turns into a gas and that sort of yeah. um, creates the plume that we see in the sky. Um, this object didn't do any of that visibly. So the object uh, was officially designated 1I 2017U1, but is known more casually as Oumuamua, which is a Hawaiian word meaning a messenger from far away. And to be quite honest, I couldn't find a consistent translation for that name. So in Hawaiian, it probably has a very specific meaning, but people have interpreted it to mean a whole bunch of different things. The most general meaning was a messenger from far away. So it is, in fact, the first object ever seen traveling through our solar system that originated outside the solar system. How how do we know that? Uh, They actually know that because of the angle that it entered the solar system. It was on this weird trajectory. Most of the things in orbit are sort of in a relatively flat plane, all spinning around the sun. This object came in from a weird angle, and then it also left on a weird angle as it passed the sun on its way out. Also, presumably the speed, it would have to be going kind of like escape velocity. It was going very, very fast. Well, very, very fast compared to other objects that that are in orbit. Uh, But they estimate it's been zipping through the galaxy for hundreds of thousands of years, possibly millions of years. Um, Obviously, there's huge distances between you know, stars and in, in the galaxy. So it took a really long time to get here from wherever it came from. A journal article has been published, but it's not actually peer-reviewed, so it's sort of been put out there from a couple of guys at Harvard who've made some suggestions. But they make all sorts of observations about Oumuamua, and one of the authors received a lot of attention for suggesting he thinks it may be, maybe from an alien civilization. Well, I got I got to say those who are fans of is it Arthur C. Clarke? Yeah. Um you see this long thin object from another solar system you think Rama. Well, yeah, there's you know this is this is the first thing some people's minds will jump to. And also, you know, the monolith from 2001 yeah, 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 and yeah. all sorts of Vija. Yeah, yeah, all sorts of uh long traveling alien craft. So, one of the reasons that uh, he's saying this This is a possibility, is that it moved in an unusual way as it passed through. So it's, it came in on a weird angle. It moved slightly erratically as it was coming in. And as it moved away from the sun, it sped up. So it's not unheard of. As I said before, comets do the same thing. As they outgas all of that ice turning into gas, it gives them a bit of forward momentum as it sort of 
pushes against them. That's just basic Newtonian physics there. So, like, the, the sun will be shining on the, the comet, and presumably the outgassing would happen on the side closest to the sun. Yeah. So it's kind of like then a rocket blasting it away from the sun. Yeah, it's like a, yeah. like a solid fuel rocket. Yep. Or a, yeah. So that actually produces gas plumes as they get heated up. But this object, this Oumuamua, did not produce any plumes at all. So the increase in speed is still something of a mystery. Of course, it may have been outgassing something that couldn't be seen. The, the, the actual visible view that we had of this object is it was a little dot. Mm. So they're, they're making a whole lot of estimations and extrapolations based on what they could see. Yeah, they couldn't see anything gassing out from it. doesn't mean nothing was gassing out from it, obviously. But one suggestion was that it was designed to do this by some distant technological civilization. So this is the idea of a solar sail. Do you know what a solar sail is? Yeah, it uses uh, radiation pressure from the sun or even the solar wind, sort of captures that and uses it to blow things along. It's usually a big, long, flat piece of fabric or something. Yeah, that's that's basically it. It's, it's a huge... Uh, very, very thin, very, very large surface area object which is actually pushed along by the energy from light. Mm. Interestingly, the guy who's saying that it's possibly a solar sail from an alien civilization is part of a project to launch a solar sail. So interesting that his mind is is in that space automatically. But this object that they've seen, Oumuamua, doesn't seem to be the sort of dimensions that would be required for that to be an actual thing. So it would need to be sort of, you know, uh, the, the size they're estimating is sort of between 40 metres across and 400 metres long. So it would have to be, you know, a millimetre thick in order to be able to do that. So it doesn't seem very likely, based on what they have observed, that it is in that sort of arrangement and that shape. It also seemed to be tumbling end over end as it moved through space, uh, which wouldn't help if it was supposed to be propelled by light. It would be best if it was in a stable position relative to the light source, so then it would be pushed in the one direction. If it was flipping over and over all the time, it would be speeding up and slowing down depending which direction the mm. the, uh, the face was pointing in. So it doesn't seem all that likely that it's actually a solar sound, but we don't really know what it's made of. We don't know exactly where it came from. It's almost certainly from a distant star system. They've sort of pinpointed four possible directions that it came from, which is, you know, that's that's pretty good, you know, looking at an object and how it was moving when they saw it and they can sort of go backwards and figure out which direction it came from. And they think it might have been, you know, it could possibly be from a planetary disintegration. So a planet might have been crushed by the gravity of a, of a star or a bigger planet. Like or Krypton. Like, like Krypton, yeah. yeah. It, could, it could be carrying a uh, tiny baby. Uh, very unlikely, of course. But, yeah, probably, you know, it's, it's very likely that it was a fragment of another body that was sort of flung out in some sort of cataclysmic explosion and flung it into interstellar space at obviously quite a high velocity that it travelled all the way to Earth and, well, not to Earth, but past Earth, past our solar system. So exactly what it is and why it is moving in such an unusual way is obviously going to take some further investigation, but it's going to be very difficult because it's gone. It's it's mm. out of here. It's already left, and we don't have any kind of technology to chase it down and, 
and uh, do any checks on it anymore. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Okay, yes, listen to Lost in Science, and like you, Stu, I've got some research I'm looking at today, which hasn't actually been published yet in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, so, you know, normally I, you know, I would try and shy, shy away from those things, but this is generating a bit of buzz. Yeah. It's almost the same as like one of those particle rumours you get at CERN, which, you know, they, they discovered a new particle on the island. Oh, and, and, you know, whether something, you know, what, what, was, the one, what was the one that uh, supposedly arrived before they hit the switch? But then they realised it was... Uh, oh, the neutrinos. The yeah, the neutrinos. Don't yeah. worry about that. Yeah. But like this one's actually biology, specifically microbiology. It's, it is a startling find which was first revealed on a poster uh, at the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience in the United States of bacteria living in the brain. So it's been, it's been peer-judged but not peer-reviewed yeah, it's at, at this point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I say startling. I should say this actually this isn't the first time this sort of thing has come up. But um, it, is just, it is quite surprising. Because well, there is a, there is a, isn't, isn't there a barrier between the blood and the brain? And, famously called and, the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, yeah. So, so how does bacteria from your gut get into your brain? Well, things can get in um, through the blood-brain barrier. Normally, this is infections. Right. And, you know, encephalitis is what you get when you have like a, an inflammation, inflammation in the brain. Yeah. yeah, due to some infectious agent like a bacteria or a virus getting in. Usually, it's a very bad thing. Um, so you don't. Expect yeah, you don't, you don't want in their brain. You don't want bacteria in your brain. No, no. no. But so this is why these researchers were surprised. So this is um, main researcher is Rosalind Roberts from the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Now her lab, they were examining the brains of people with schizophrenia, um, they're getting tissue from people who had died and comparing it to tissue from um, people without schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Trying to look for differences. And about five years ago, one of the undergraduate students in the lab had noticed these small rod shaped objects in the tissue samples that she could see un- under the electron microscope. Now, Rosalind Roberts had seen them before herself and said, uh, you know, I think they're important. Of looking- We're looking at something else here. Those things aren't important. Um, just go, oh, there they are again. But the student said, well, what are these things? So she asked around and eventually someone identified them as bacteria. So they went looking for more bacteria, and they found them basically in every brain they've checked. So 34 so far. Um, half of them were happy with schizophrenia. Half of them were healthy. So these are, But these are tissue samples from, from deceased patients, presumably. Well, this is the thing. So is it some sort of contamination? That's the obvious thing to think of. You know? I mean, this, this, this makes me think of the scare from many years ago when people stopped using aluminium-based deodorants because there was a supposed link between aluminium and Alzheimer's disease, which turned out to be that all of the brain samples they were examining had been preserved with aluminium. So the link is not really uh, an actual right. okay. causation. It's just that, yeah, well, of course they were full of aluminium because they used that as a preserving agent. Well, so, yeah, so there is something that maybe this is some sort of post-mortem contamination. So mm-hmm. they, um, they try and looking at brains from healthy mice and they found the similar bacteria. Okay. Um, they, of course, the mice were um, were killed in the process. Yeah. But, um, they, but they were fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They also tried it with mice that had been specifically raised to be completely bacteria-free, 
and they didn't have anything in their brains. It's something that seems to be inherent to the organism. But well, that's, that's that's a good that's a good comparison. But they're they're, they're trying to they're trying to confirm this. Um, like I said, this isn't the first time that this has come up. I went looking for it around, and there was a study in 2013 that was examining uh, infections in the brains of people with HIV/AIDS. What they did, they were doing RNA sequencing to find out if there were bacteria in the brain tissue samples. Um, and what they found is they found indications of bacteria in patients regardless of whether or not they had HIV. And this, and this included samples of brain tissue from patients who had had surgery for epilepsy. So the patients were actually still alive mm-hmm. and uh, the tissue had been removed and they found um, indications of bacterial RNA in those samples as well. So right. this has been seen before, the same yeah. kind of surprising result. What happened with this one, though, is uh, um, with Rosalind Roberts' research is that they also did RNA sequencing to find the, what types of bacteria there were. And they found three types, Firmicutes, Proteobacteria and Bacterioidetes. These are all types that are commonly found in the gut. So they do seem to be gut bacteria that are somehow in the brain. They don't know how they got there. Again, there could be some unknown source of contamination, or they could have, like, you know, they could have um, travelled up through the nerves somehow, or they maybe think maybe they got through the nose somehow because things can actually enter the brain through membranes in the nose, and they have no idea whether they're doing a good thing or a bad thing in these brains tissue samples. They do seem to like be in certain places. They uh, were found largely in the substantia nigra, which is part of the kind of the midbrain, the hippocampus, which you may have heard of, also the um, the prefrontal cortex. But there are fewer numbers in other areas. They gather around particular kinds of cells and particular parts of cells as well. So they weren't everywhere uniformly. They were around specific spots. Um, maybe they were feeding off something in particular. Maybe they, who knows? We don't know what. This is only very early in this research. Yeah, but it's pretty amazing that that uh, that they're there in the first place. It is pretty amazing. Now, like I said, it's it's not unheard of for bacteria to get in the brain. It's not even unheard of for bacteria to or infectious things to get into the brain and not cause disease. Uh, you might have heard of Toxoplasma gondii. Yeah, that um, yeah, the parasitic infection that can cause. Well, it comes from cats yeah. and can cause problems, but it can also not cause any symptoms. So sometimes it can be in the brain and not cause any symptoms. So this can happen. It's just surprising to find so much gut bacteria basically in every brain they looked at. Yeah, so again, further work needs to be done to find if this is a real thing or just some sort of source of contamination that they haven't discovered, like those faster-than-light neutrinos you talked about turn out to be an error in the equipment. Um, there could be an error that they have made. But it is a fascinating thing. It's really unexpected. And yeah, this could be a way that um, the gut microbiome, you know, people believe it affects the brain. It could be this is how it directly affects the brain, by actually traveling into the brain and mucking around up there. <laughs> mucking around. Ever wondered what happens to all the pharmaceutical drugs we take once they end up flushed down the toilet? Well, some new research suggests that they don't just disappear, but they end up in our waterways and our ecosystems. To talk us through her study and what it all means, we have freshwater ecologist from Monash University, Dr. Erin Richmond. Erin, welcome to Lost in Science. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me. Now, tell us about your study. What were you looking for and um, did you do? Yeah, I guess, uh, well, we as scientists have, have known for the last sort of almost two decades that pharmaceutical pollution is found in waters across the world, wherever wastewater is present. Um, but what we really didn't know and what our study, we, we sort of designed our studies to tell us, was whether or not pharmaceuticals were making their way into aquatic food webs. 
So starting with insects that live in the streams, and then if these insects were undergoing metamorphosis, if when that which is where they emerge as a larvae all the way through to a winged adult and fly out of the stream, if they were being consumed by spiders that live on the stream bank, and if these spiders were also accumulating levels of pharmaceuticals. What did you find? Yeah, so we actually, we looked at six sites across Melbourne um, and these sites were chosen based on influences of wastewater. So we had one site that was downstream of a high capacity wastewater treatment plant all the way through to one that was within a national park. Right. What we found was that we were detecting up to 69 different pharmaceuticals in the insects living in these streams. And the highest concentrations that we found were downstream of this large scale wastewater treatment plant. But what was sort of, I guess, more surprising too was that these pharmaceuticals were indeed moving through the food web. So we were seeing uh, levels of pharmaceuticals, so I think up to 66 different compounds in these spiders that live on the stream bank that feed on um, aquatic insects. And then we were able to relate our concentrations of the in-stream aquatic insects to look at predatory responses. So, for example, we, we could work out how many insects a platypus needs to eat per day um, and then equate that to what portion of a human daily dose these pharmaceuticals, um, these platypus might be getting exposed to. So we actually could calculate that a platypus, if it was to feed on insects living in Brushy Creek, which was the site that had the wastewater treatment plant on it, they would actually be exposed to uh, over 50% of a human dose of antidepressants a day. That is alarming to say the least, but what, what do we actually know about the effect and the toxicity of these of these sorts of pharmaceutical products on invertebrates and also, you know, platypus? Yeah, well, what's really interesting about pharmaceuticals is they're designed to be biologically active. So they're designed to have an effect at reasonably low concentrations. So, for example, you and I take a Panadol if we had a he- have a headache and that, and that helps us. Whereas for these animals that are living in streams, these insects, we don't actually know what mechanisms um, they use or if these pharmaceuticals are having effect. There's been a lot of work in the toxicology literature that looks at single species um, and, and sort of one pharmaceutical drug and how that affects insects or fish. And studies have shown that um, antidepressants, for example, can change fish boldness is what they call. So basically fish were becoming more docile and more likely to be preyed upon because they weren't scared of their predators. But what was sort of most alarming and brought to our attention with this study was that we detected 69 different drugs. And I certainly know if um, if I was to go to my doctor and say, oh, hey, I'm taking 69 different drugs, the doctor would probably have a heart attack. So we, we need to sort of, the next step would be to, you know, spare a thought, I guess, for these platypus that could be potentially exposed to 69 different drugs. How does this issue manifest itself? How do the drugs get into the water? Um, and how can we uh, be better equipped to make sure they don't make it into the waterways? Yeah, so uh, when we consume pharmaceuticals or drugs, uh, not always um, all of the chemical is used within our system and we excrete it typically in our urine, which ends up in these wastewater treatment plants. Likewise, if unwanted medication is also flushed down the drain. Um, And unfortunately, these treatment plants are not necessarily always designed to break down compounds. Um, and there could be you know, upwards of thousands of different compounds available. Um, we know there's many available in the PBS scheme, for example. And these compounds then eventually find their way out into the environment. And I guess currently the technology and the funding isn't there for plants to target specific compounds. And it's also quite a difficult process to make sure all of these compounds are removed. 
can you talk us through the actual um, creeks that you were testing and the sort of um, method that you, you used to collect the information? Yes, yeah, certainly. So as I mentioned, we chose sites that were influenced by wastewater. So we had uh, sites that were downstream of a, a wastewater treatment plant. We also selected some sites that flowed through areas of known septic tank areas. The idea there was to capture any sort of leaky infrastructure. We also had one that was in an urban site and then, of course, uh, one within a national park, which is where we didn't expect to see many drugs at all. Um, so each site we set out to collect aquatic invertebrates and you do that quite simply by using a net. Uh, it's called a kick net where you create a disturbance at the bottom of the stream and the insects are then dislodged and then move into your net and you're able to capture them um, quite easily. Um, and I guess from there... These insects were then identified back in the laboratory uh, before being prepared and then sent off for analysis using liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, uh, which is how we got to find and quantify the pharmaceutical concentrations within these aquatic insects. Would the next step be to take blood tests uh, from um, higher order insectivores, platypus, those more, those, you know, uh, mammal species? Yeah, absolutely, and, and that's an easy way that we can non-invasively sample these animals. And, I mean, we're also looking now outside of the stream channels. So I mentioned we, we found drugs in spiders, so this has got to have implications for birds and bats and, and frogs and other animals that would feed on insects and these riparian spiders as well. The, the idea of, I guess, pharmaceutical contamination within our streams, this is quite a groundbreaking study for the number of contaminants that you found, do you think there's going to be a, um, you know, this is this is going to lead a larger amount of research in this area? Yeah, certainly. So we call pharmaceuticals um, contaminants of emerging concern because not enough is known about them. So there is a lot of research now in this space is moving forward to understand sort of the fate of these drugs in the environment. Um, and certainly it's a major call for more research in this area. For, you know, people listening around Australia, what, what would be your advice to maybe, you know, people who are living near a stream or uh, what are some sort of, I guess, tangible ways that, you know, they might be able to, you know, help? Yeah, and I mean, this certainly isn't an issue for anyone um, near a waterway or anything. I guess in, in Australia... Most of our waste goes into localised wastewater treatment plants that do discharge either into a stream or river or a coastal. Uh, so we need to, I guess, think when we're at the home. Um, I would never say not to use medication. It's wonderful. But when we um, are disposing of leftover drugs or if they have passed their best before or use-by date, rather than flush them down the drain, we're best to take them back to the pharmacist where they can dispose of them properly. Um, and likewise, people living in rural areas or areas that have septic tank and systems, if they just sort of maintain those systems to ensure that there's no leakage, um, especially into stormwater, which eventually finds its way into streams and rivers. Erin, thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Science today. Best of luck with the next part of the research, and um, I hope you can come and join us on Lost in Science again in the future. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for our invasion episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science, it is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please uh, get in touch with us if you like us. Send us or drop us a line and tell us how much you like us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can um, message us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. You can find us on the Twitter, which we are Lost in Science 1. 
Uh, you can download our podcast from a podcast service. If you have a podcast service where you can give us a review, please give us a good review because that raises us in the search rankings and other people can find us and you share the science love around. Or you can just listen to us on the radio. At same time, every week, Claire, Stu and Chris will get Lost, Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.